Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Three Ravens Bestiary, a series all about mythical monsters, legendary creatures and things that go bump in the night. My name's Martin Vaux, I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive and I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime and all dark arts. Eleanor Conlon. Hello. I've got to say, I've really been looking forward to this and I've been wailing in the night just for practice. (laughs) Well, I can report that she has indeed been wailing in the night, but luckily I possess a very good pair of noise-cancelling headphones. (laughs) And so in this episode, we are talking about the lonesome night messenger of Irish myth, the hair-combing, shirt-washing, blood-curdling harbinger of death, the Banshee. Eleanor, when I say Banshee... Do you have any immediate thoughts or expectations? Well, I think of the Banshee as a sort of Gaelic-originating screaming woman. Okay, sure. Well, I mean, should we start with the name? What What do you think the word Banshee actually means? Well, I guess it's an Irish or Gaelic word. Sure. Um, uh, does ban mean woman? It does, yeah. <laughs> I'm, and I'm going to take a guess and say that she means... Screaming. <laughs> is, that, is that what it is? Well, you're half right. Uh, ban <laughs> does indeed mean woman. And in Old Irish, the she bit means fairy. Oh. So although we maybe are used to banshees from sort of fantasy books and video games being kind of mystical antagonists, they're perhaps slightly less sinister than people might immediately expect. Not just a fairy woman, the she or sheath in Old Irish is a fairy mound, much like the kind of fairy mound we have all over the British Isles. That's really interesting and not what I expected. Oh, good. (laughs) Because I have always thought they were quite scary or, well, quite sad. Mm. Sad and scary. Ah, well. Um, So that suggests to me banshees might be the ladies of the fairy mound. And they can be. And although in popular culture the banshee is mainly associated with Ireland in particular, there are also variations on the same creature from other parts of Britain, including... The Ceherath in Wales, the 
calyx or carlins of Scotland, and there are also some examples from Gaul or Gallic writing in what later became France. Whoa, so the banshee's not just an Irish thing. I mean, there are differences, and it's probably fair to say that the banshee isn't just one thing either, but there are common sources for these legends from across the British Isles, and we know that a lot of mythical creatures and cryptids have, you know, truly ancient origins, but from digging around the earliest mentions of banshees and variations on the theme that I can find, and from reading an amazing, quite academic book on the subject, Banshee, the Irish Death Messenger by Patricia Lysat, the earliest records of banshees date from the 14th century. Oh, really? It seems a bit churlish to say of the 14th century's recent, but actually, <laughs> when we were talking about unicorns in our last bestiary episode, their history dates back thousands of years. I know, right? I mean, we are still dating things in centuries for the Banshee rather than millennia. But yeah, 1380 seems to be where we find the earliest references. And that isn't to say that there won't have been references in writings before then. But I mean, there's no getting around the fact that many peoples, not least the English, have a long history of going to Ireland and kind of just destroying things, Mm. you know, records, buildings, entire communities. Yes, it's true. I am a person of very distant Irish descent and both both sides of my family ultimately came to England from Ireland. And I've got to say, not everywhere in Ireland are the English beloved. (laughs) No, and your pal Oliver Cromwell is amongst the nation's greatest villains. Guilty as charged. (laughs) It's complicated. (laughs) Still, the earliest records we have of Banshees start with a text which is known in English as The Triumphs of Torlo, which is a historical text about a set of wars between the Irish and the Normans, then the English, over what is today County Clare. Though written in the 1380s, the text covers the period of these wars, which went on from about 1194 to 1318. And in that text, Banshees repeatedly appear offering warnings about the certain doom various battles will bring to the generals and commanders and their soldiers. Well, that sounds pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm also going to presume that just because we didn't have any written records of Banshees from before then, that doesn't mean they didn't exist in the oral tradition. Well, I think it's very safe to presume exactly that because even the oldest version we have of the Triumphs of Torlo date from 300 years after it was written originally. And it's not like Banshees are presumed presented as new and innovative in that text. So another interesting facet is that we know that writing in general existed in Ireland before it existed in England. So from the 7th century, monks were writing in both Latin and Old Irish at monasteries like Clonmacnoise, Glendalo and the Rock of Cashel. And although the English are perhaps the archetypal villains in Irish culture, and probably rightly so, the native Gaelic people did sack many of the first (laughs) monasteries far more often than the English did. They were at it for well over 500 years destroying records, stealing treasure, desecrating relics, you know, all the good stuff. Yeah, it's sort of worth remembering that although now Ireland is rather synonymous with Catholic Protestant tensions, there was an Aboriginal Irish culture before Christianity came to the country. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I am definitely no expert in this area of study. I've read a bit and I find it absolutely fascinating. But the very earliest records of ancient Irish folklore and mythology come from three sources. The Book of Leinster, which is at Trinity College, Dublin. The Book of Glendalow, which is at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And the one you're going to be most excited about, which is held at the Royal Irish Academy. Wait for it. 
It's the Book of the Dun Cow. What, shut up. The Dun Cow has a book? <laughs> and yeah. I didn't know about this? <laughs> I mean, she didn't write it, but uh, but uh, who's? Um, rather, <laughs> the idea is that the book was written on vellum that was once the skin of a dun cow. Oh, no way. Which kind of ties neatly into your Dying Arts episode for next week, actually. Oh, it does. I might have to include the Book of the Dun do Cow. It, do it. it. Sounds amazing. <laughs> Is it actually about the Dun Cow? No, no. It's about a series of different legends. And it is properly amazing. I mean, all of these books, the Book of Leinster, the Book of Glendalough and the Book of the Dun Cow are all fragmentary texts. They've all been damaged and are made up of other texts and stories that come from earlier times or which seem to have been copied or translated from other sources. And they are really where we get Irish mythology from. So sort of all of those texts combined, uh, some of them kind of cover the same areas as one another, but they each date from the 12th century. Ah, oh, this is so fascinating. And so I'm imagining this is where we get things like um, the Irish pantheon and, and the, the fairy people. And, yeah, yeah. And, and apologies if I'm not 100% on the pronunciation. Sure. Um, I don't speak Gaelic. Uh, the uh, Tuatha de Danann and uh, the Fomorians yep. and the Fianna warriors like Finn McCool yeah, and uh, the legends surrounding him. correct. But very interestingly... No banshees. Which seems quite strange now you come to think of it. It does indeed. And they do feature the Morrigan, Mm. otherwise known as the Phantom Queen. In case you're not familiar, the Morrigan is a goddess of war and fate, sometimes presented as three sisters rather than just one god. And the Morrigan sometimes appear as a crow, sometimes a washerwoman. And of course, we're dealing with a lot of, as I've said, sort of fragmentary information here. So who knows the extent to which the Morrigan and the Banshee are meant to be or were once seen as the same or similar entities. And I've always thought uh, Morrigan was an, a name, a proper name. Ah. Does, does the word have meaning? It uh, does, yeah, yeah. It, it means either Phantom Queen or Nightmare Queen. Oh goals <laughs> but also nightmare queen and fairy woman are not the same thing admittedly so meaning if we put the morrigan and the death presaging washerwoman to one side and focus on the sources of specific banshee legends we have as mentioned the triumphs of torlo which dates from around 1380 and then the next earliest reference come from the memoirs of lady fanshaw which was written by a royalist irish woman lady anne fanshaw and it was published in 1665. Ooh, so almost 300 years. It's, it's quite a big time jump. It is. And interestingly, as a total aside, Anne Fanshaw's memoirs also contain the earliest record we have of a recipe for ice cream. <laughs> Wailing ladies and ice cream. Sounds like what happens when me and my girlfriend get together <laughs> well, when, a party. When it comes to the whaling, actually, we need to talk about the idea of keening. Oh, yes. So this is an ancient tradition in Ireland and parts of Scotland where, as part of the mourning process, when someone passed away, a keening woman would come to the home of the deceased or to the wake and wail a lament. I find this such an interesting idea. Yeah. And as someone who's quite in touch with my emotions i wonder if there are any job openings for this. <laughs> well i think it is really fascinating it's very different to many death traditions the word keening meaning crying and although the tradition steadily declined from the 18th century onwards becoming extinct in the 20th century we do have some fragmentary records of the kinds of freestyle poetry and melodies heard in keening songs but most of what survives 
that kind of appears to have been made up later during the 20th it's century. It's so fascinating to have had this really widespread tradition that's just sort of, if you forgive the pun, passed away. Yeah, it really is. But what's curious to me is just as Keening was dying out, there's a kind of growing interest in banshees, which then explodes during the 19th century folk revival, at which time, of course, there's a related growth in Irish nationalism and a resulting complex political landscape involving emigration and civil war and so on, which is a whole other hornet's nest. It sounds like you're saying that maybe banshee legends are a bit wrapped up with ideas of Irish national identity. I mean, I don't want to wade into deep water here, but in essence, it maybe seems so, in that a lot of Irish writers in the 19th century and early 20th century took on ideas of the banshee. I'm talking about people like William Butler Yeats and Oscar Wilde and George Moore and so on. And they kind of span out stories around their own work to create an idea of the banshee that maybe, well, that maybe wasn't quite as in evidence in history as uh, many people might think. Okay, is it a bit of a Jeffrey of Monmouth? <laughs> I mean, certainly there's a sense of the Banshee being written about a little bit in the 17th century, but it's really later on in the 18th and especially the 19th century that she grows into something a bit more substantial in any recorded sense. I'm still quite interested in the fairy connection, Mm, because when I think of fairies, I don't necessarily think Banshee. No, and this is one of the interesting facets of the Banshee within folklore, in that fairies in Ireland and England and Scotland and across the British Isles and maybe even Northern Europe... They're thought of as social creatures, so fairies live together with other fairies, whereas one of the defining features of the banshee is she's expected to be seen alone. That's quite sad. And you mentioned earlier that she's a death messenger. Yeah, precisely. So aside from the loneliness of the banshee, the other generally agreed features of the banshee are that, firstly, she's always female, and secondly, that her appearance prefigures a death in the family. And when you say family, is there a particular banshee attached to a particular family? Like, would we have our own? Maybe. I mean, so the earliest record we have of that idea comes from 1888, so height of the folk revival. But today it's almost taken as read that banshees are linked to particular Irish clans and bloodlines, and so appear to people within those bloodlines when a family member is set to pass away. And again, this isn't to say that oral traditions of this don't go back far further, because they may have but to articulate it clearly there's a line of folklore studies that argues that this idea of banshees appearing to particular bloodlines is kind of ethno-nationalist oh yeah and i realize that sounds quite heavy but if you imagine there's centuries-long tensions in ireland about what it means to be a true gael or a true gaelic irish person and within that debates about which waves of intruders or invaders are really Irish. And this is a messy, messy area of anthropology in a way, because lots of the O families and Mac families, they have names that come from Norman French ancestry. Something like 20% of old Irish family names aren't actually from quote-unquote Gaelic origins, and some of them claim a banshee. But... You know, I don't want to upset anyone talking about this stuff because it's sensitive to many people. Yeah, I understand what you mean, though, because sometimes ideas like this one can be used as a way of trying to exert a sort of elite status within a society. Yeah. And also, it's it's very difficult to prove it's not true as mm, well. Because yes. you can say to somebody, oh, well, of course you can't see my banshee because she only appears to members of my clan. <laughs> yeah, and to make things a little more complex still... 
in the 19th centuries we have, it's said that banshees only appear to presage the death of male family members uh. and or the male heads of families. And so that feeds into notions of primogeniture and all that makes me a bit itchy, I've yeah, got to say. it's a bit uncomfortable, <laughs> isn't it? It's like the idea that women aren't important enough yeah, to have a death presage. Quite right. But it's also not a terribly uncommon idea. Yes. This idea of uh, somebody appearing before death. So yeah. in the Old Norse traditions, for example, you've got the Filgia, who are similar female spirits who kind of follow and guide and pass messages from the other world to the male heads of families. Yeah, that's it. So, you know, sexism is a widespread concept <laughs> across cultures. It that's not news to anyone. Indeed <laughs> is, yeah. And what's really interesting to me about the Banshee is that although we perhaps think of them as a physical manifestation, or a visible one at least, in a huge survey done of Irish people during the 20th century about the Banshee, taking in tens of thousands of surveys, in only 15% of Banshee occurrences was it said that the Banshee was seen. Instead, what's fairly ubiquitous is that the Banshee is an aural phenomenon. So she's heard much more than she is seen. The whale of the Banshee. Exactly. So we have various descriptions of the sound and they do conflict. It's most commonly called a cry, but some say it's like an owl's shriek. Some say it's a dog-like howl. Some accounts associate it with cats and vixens. Others, the wind, but all agree that it's a terrifying noise which leaves people frightened, making your hair stand up and leaving you in no doubt that it's an unearthly sound. And they only appear to members of a family when a relative's going to die. Well, not always, actually. It's thought that they will also be heard by friends and neighbours. And, of course, there are plenty of accounts of them being seen as well as heard. Okay, so the sounds of a supernatural whale in the night sounds scary enough. Yeah. But if I suddenly see a banshee, uh, am, I, am I going to like the experience? <laughs> uh, other than it presaging the death of someone I know. But is it going to take the edge <laughs> off, though? Well, probably not. <laughs> so again, there are conflicting accounts. But the generally agreed look is of a little woman, almost childlike in size. So between one and four feet tall. Oh, that's tiny. Yep. And they often appear on your windowsill. Oh, I, I want to, I, My first instinct was to say that's adorable. Yeah. But then the idea of one actually just appearing on your windowsill, I, I, I don't like. Yeah. Well, they're usually olds. They're described as hag-like and ugly oh. and are most commonly wearing white combing their hair while they wail. So it's a tiny, ugly lady yep. on the window ledge. Yep. I, I think I'd probably be inclined to tell her to go away. Oh, well, be careful telling her off if one does appear, because it is commonly held belief that to interrupt or offend a banshee is very bad luck, prompting her to throw her comb at you. What? Yeah. So banshee's combs are not in every version of accounts. And they're sometimes made of metal, sometimes bone or wood. And some people say that they're usually combs with broken teeth. But the idea is if you distract a banshee or tell one to leave, then she'll throw her comb, letting bad luck into your house until you give the comb back. And when you do, the banshee is said to grab the limb or object holding the comb, leaving a permanent mark of five fingers wrapped around that limb or Ooh. object. That yeah. sounds alarming. Yeah. I think you need 
very long pair of tongs. <laughs> well, actually, tongs have been recorded as being scarred, as have spades. So people holding things out on a spade and the spade having the, the mark wow. of five fingers that wrapped around. And when you think about the hair combing thing, there's a few interesting things about it. One is the association with mermaids, because there is a kind mm. of common association and link between this idea of you know combing hair and mermaids and banshees. Um, but this is something I think that will interest you, especially from a period costume perspective, if you think about it for a minute. Yeah, because loose hair in history is the preserve of unmarried women. Precisely, so Married, yeah. mature women, adult women would never normally appear in public showing off loose hair. It was normally tucked away under a covering or a bonnet of some sort. Yeah, exactly that. Meanwhile, in Ireland, it was traditional for women to be able to loose their hair during wakes. Mm. So letting your hair down was part of mourning. And, you know, that was all involved in kind of an outpouring of grief. And in the case of banshees, they were commonly thought to have very long silver grey hair, long enough to stretch down to their feet. Wow, that's very long. I don't think I'll grow mine that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is long. And there are a few other interesting tidbits associated with them, such as they sometimes also carry beetles in their spare hands. What? <laughs> yep. Apparently sometimes carry an insect, usually a beetle, and talk to it from time to time in between all the wailing, presumably. <laughs> I wonder what they're saying to their beetles. Yeah, who's to know? But overall, that's kind of the headlines when it comes to banshees. They come before someone in the family dies, make a horrid racket and then vanish, leaving everyone feeling frightened about who it is that's going to pass away. <laughs> it feels really quite gloomy. Yeah. I, I feel quite sad for the Banshee, but I'm I'm seeing a kind of alternate Disney princess here. <laughs> I mean, she's got the long rippling hair, the animal familiar that she chats yeah, true enough. Yeah, Come maybe. on, Disney. <laughs> well, it's also one of those things you're not supposed to follow a banshee out into nature. Um, there's a lot of bad luck associated with them. So the washerwoman variation that, that I mentioned earlier to do with the Morrigan. So sometimes like a drunken man will see her washing clothes, mm. interrupt the washing and say, oh, why don't you wash my shirt for me? And then the banshee will give you know, a glare or whatever or a shriek, the person will go home. And then in the middle of the night, they'll be woken up by the banshee in their room who will rip their clothes clothing away and steal it and then they have to go and beg forgiveness and will often end up with a scar or a mark from the banshee blimey yeah i mean that's not so much disney princess but uh, uh, no but on the other hand you shouldn't just expect somebody to wash your clothes for them no and and you also shouldn't be rude to little old ladies that appear on your windowsill no and (laughs) don't don't try and interrupt them when they want a really good long way yeah they're trying to communicate a message to you as well so yeah anyway that's banshees quite interesting thank you very much for that i'm now going to go and keen mournfully for the fate of those poor long-haired spirit women with their little beetles. <laughs> but while I do, what hope for the future can I comfort myself with? What are you going to be covering on the next Three Ravens Bestiary episode? Okay, well, next month I want to talk about one of the most exciting and absolutely fundamental creatures of myth and legend, the death-defying firebird and icon of immortality. The phoenix. Oh, that's one of the big ones. Yeah. And actually, another creature I maybe think I know more about than I actually do. (laughs) Well, in the meantime, if you would like bonus content, including all of our episodes ad-free, all of the stories from our mainline episodes as text versions, and bonus content, including exclusive episodes and episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, please consider joining our Patreon for just $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. 
And please, if you can, write us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Oh, yes, please. Email us with thoughts, feedback, and entries for our winter folklore card design contest mm. to three ravens podcast at gmail.com. And follow us on social media via facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast, Instagram at three ravens podcast, and on Twitter via at three ravens pod. Until next time, while our mythical creature's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such leemen With a down, derry, 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 down, down Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.